0: Welcome to SGO On The Go, where we discuss advances in gynecologic oncology research, clinical practice, and other popular topics in our subspecialty. This episode is part of a two-part series on frailty, which will feature interviews with frailty experts and case presentations. Dr. Mei Chen from the University of California, San Francisco will moderate. Dr. Chen?
1: As previously announced, this is the second of two podcasts addressing the concept of frailty and how we assess and prepare our patients for surgery. The first podcast presented example cases to introduce tools and concepts, while this second podcast addresses their practical implementation. The format for this podcast includes two conversations centering around the assessment of frailty, functional status, and how this affects our surgical planning. Our special guests include Dr. Tor Barksdale, a specialist in physical medicine and rehabilitation at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Emily Finlayson, a colorectal surgeon at the University of California, San Francisco. Interviewing Dr. Barksdale is Dr. Amanika Kumar.
2: So I'm thrilled to be here and talk to you, Dr. Barksdale. Um, my name is Monica Kumar. I'm from Mayo Clinic, and I know that you are newly joined us at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Um, and today I am excited to talk to you about cancer rehabilitation, specifically the idea of prehabilitation, which has been a really hot topic for our field recently. So Dr. Broxdale, would you mind just starting by telling us about uh, where you're coming from? What's your background and training, and how you've come to the world of cancer prehabilitation?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I did my residency at Detroit Medical Center, Wayne State University in beautiful Detroit, Michigan, where after my four years, I loved working with cancer patients the most, as it's my favorite patient population. So cancer rehabilitation was kind of a newer field at the time. So instead of doing a, another fellowship in palliative care hospice, I decided to go and do cancer rehabilitation where I did that fellowship at MD Anderson, where then I actually worked a few years in Mayo Clinic Health System, started a cancer rehabilitation clinic there, and then decided to go back later and do another fellowship in palliative care hospice, which I recently competed uh, June 2021 of this year, actually, where I did that at MD Anderson as well.
2: And I think this whole field of prehabilitation is um, unique to some of our cancers where we start thinking about rehabilitation and function kind of post-surgery or post-treatment and in survivorship, but then this idea of prehabilitation. So can, can you define prehabilitation for us so that we can understand it better?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So in the cancer care continuum, I would say from diagnosis to treatment, prehabilitation is really defined as the process that occurs between the time of diagnosis of cancer and the beginning of the acute treatment, where we look at physical and psychological assessments to establish baseline level function for the patient. patient. So we can also identify any functional impairments that may be occurring before treatment and also provide really targeted and specific interventions for that patient to really help improve their health in order to reduce the incidence and severity of current or future impairments, usually related to the treatment, whether it's Chemotherapy, radiation therapy, or surgery as well.
2: What are some of the goals of prehabilitation? And, like, how, you know, you talk about designing interventions, and we'll get to that, but, like, what are some of those goals in prehabilitation?
3: Yeah, so some of the goals we really want to do is really increase the functional reserve of patient as much as we can. So they have less impact when they're getting treatments from cancer, which are very debilitating themselves, as they can cause a lot of side effects and issues or other complications or prolonged hospitalizations as well. So what we really like to do is really establish that functional baseline of where you're at and what we can improve, looking at your conditioning. And also the biggest one of, well, I should say a bigger component is psychological assessment as well, making sure, seeing how you're doing with anxiety, depression, have, make sure you have a good support structure as you should have whenever you're going through cancer treatment. So we're kind of taking a look at all these things together to help optimize patients. So before they have these treatments, they have that big functional reserve. So they don't take as big of a hit when they start getting some of the treatments they're going to be getting in the future and can have better outcomes afterwards.
2: Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I think a lot about is sort of distinguishing medical optimization, meaning like glycemic control, smoking cessation, um, weight control, and, you know, VTE management, which we've talked about at a previous podcast, and making that separate and distinct from prehabilitation, which seems very focused on function is, is that how you think about it? Or is there, you know, I know there's always going to be crossover, but what do you think are the sort of the specific prehabilitation things that are separate from medical optimization?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, medical optimization is really looking at the pre-existing comorbidities, whether it's high blood pressure, diabetes, making sure those are well managed. So you don't really have those complications during surgery, things they need to address prehabilitation is more multidisciplinary. We do do take a look at those things as well, which will also get reevaluated it's usually surgical pre-op clinics. But as physiatrists, we're looking at the level of function of a person, how their household is, where their discharge disposition is going to be, how they're doing now in their level of function with regards to walking, transferring, Their activities of daily living. On top of that, having nutritionists involved looking at their nutritional status, looking at their protein intakes, having our therapists involved to help us look for functional deficits that may impair them, looking for things like frailty, having counselors involved to help address psychological complaints. So it's a much more, I would say, comprehensive, multidisciplinary care of the patient so we can help preserve those things and build upon them prior to doing any sort of treatment whatsoever, so we can help minimize the effects of that treatment and hopefully have a better outcome after the treatment as well, as opposed to just looking at medical comorbidities.
2: Yeah. So, you know, you've mentioned a lot about what are the different elements you're looking at to preserve function, whether it's psychological, nutrition, uh, exercise, and whatnot. When you look at a patient, and it seems to me like this must be very personalized to the patient and as well as to the treatment, the cancer-related treatment that they're going to have. So so what are some of those elements of prehabilitation? Like what are you doing and what's, how do you know what to give to what patient?
3: Absolutely. There is no one-size-fit-all when it comes to prehabilitation, which can make it somewhat hard to do and establish those clinics because every patient's going to be a little different. So we do have some standardized testing that we do, where we do have some cutoffs when it comes to um, length that you do for a six-minute walk test, when it comes to grip strength that we have as a screening tool. But once we look at those, then we have to take a little further step back and look at that individualized patient. What are their functional impairments? Is there neuropathy involved? Are they having falls? Is there assistive equipment they're using for gait and ambulation? Do they have that help at home? What is their muscle built I should make up right now. What is their fat composition? Can we help to improve some of those before they go into surgery? What medications might be impeding their level of function, their cognition? So we take this whole step back approach with all of our team members, which include physical therapists, nutritionists, counselors, and psychologists, even that medical acute treatment team as well. We take that step back, look at the individual patient, and that's when you come up with that individualized plan for that patient that's more specific to them, or they need to focus on strengthening, whether it's conditioning, whether it's nutrition, whether it's psychological, I'd say treatment as well, all those play a factor into this. So that's what creates, I'd say, a custom treatment plan for each patient that we see, which can be very time consuming as well, and does require some time to really optimize that and get the best results.
2: And do you have any data or do you know of any data that helps you say, okay, here's the best test pre-op? Or like if you, I mean, I think what we've learned is that some assessment is better than no assessment, but I I think people really struggle with like, what kind of assessment should we do? Mm -hmm. And the second question is then how do we even incorporate that clinically? Any thoughts about that?
3: Absolutely. So there I'd say the most data right now is coming out of Canada from McGill university where they have a very robust pre-op clinic there, especially when it comes to the cancer population there are multiple tests you can do to assess for things like frailty, to assess for exercise intolerance. Uh, the thing is, you have to find out what's best for your clinic and what's best for the patients and also what best you have for space around you. Some of these things are not going to be available at every institution you go to. Sometimes it's going to be limited due to virtual visits and unfortunately the pandemic that we're in but it's learning how to adapt to these and finding out what you can do best and what you can do on a more consistent and regular basis in clinic to get some of these testing underway and done as well. So it's really going to be what resources you have available to you. There's lots of validated tests out there and it's what you can apply to your patient population that you can do on a regular basis.
2: Yeah. And I I think, um, you know, one of the other things I struggle with or I think a lot about is, for example, I I have my maybe medically comorbid patient who's maybe not that fit, but my intervention I need to do is a minimally invasive hysterectomy, and I could probably get them through pretty well versus someone who's like maybe a little more fit, less medically comorbid, but has a pretty extensive ovarian cancer that's going to need a lot of chemotherapy and surgery and perhaps um, getting them ready for surgery is important. Like how do I balance given limited resources who I send to prehabilitation and are there people who are never going to benefit from prehab? Are there people who are fit so fit that they don't need it? People who are so unfit that they don't need it. And how mm-hmm. do you identify that group? You can make a difference. Yeah.
3: So that is an excellent question, big kind of gray area in prehab right now, especially in terms to who's going to benefit the most and how frail they are, they need what surgery. A lot of that's also going to depend on what sort of cancer they have and the natural course of the cancer. If it's a more indolent cancer, that's going to take a long time to progress and you know you can delay things then yes, I'd probably recommend that you delay that treatment to whether it be chemotherapy or surgery to a point where they can get more prehab under usually hopefully four to six weeks or more if you're able to delay that surgery because it's more of an indolent cancer so they can get that benefit of rehabilitation and that prehabilitation. So, they can build that functional reserve and then get the best out of the treatments. If it's a cancer where really diag- from diagnosis to time to treatment, time to surgery is very the most important thing in terms of su- survival of that cancer, you won't have that much leeway to kind of prolong things as we could with some other indolent more types of cancer, like colorectal cancer, for instance. So that's something you have to really talk about with the surgeons and the oncologists and also the prehabilitation team to see. Are we able to delay some of this treatment so we can get more rehabilitation under our wings so to build up that reserve of the patient and then proceed with the treatment? When it comes to prehabilitation, not everyone benefits. Some people are just so frail, even doing minimal exercise or therapy is too much for them. And if that's the case, I would say that's time to take a step back, look at the patient, look at the treatment, look at the survivability and the prognosis and decide is this the best treatment for the patient? If any minimal therapy is causing significant impairment or causing worsening of symptoms like dyspnea, um, pain in other places, might they benefit more from a less aggressive sort of treatment or maybe doing more long-term chemotherapy or possibly even palliative care hospice if they're just so deconditioned that even prehab not helping or even making things worse. That's a discussion you have to have as a team for multidisciplinary meeting to decide, I would say, if that treatment plan is even the best thing for the patient. So these are a lot of things which I'd say are kind of hot topics in prehabilitation right now is timing until, I'd say, treatment, time you have diagnosed the treatment to do the prehabilitation, and also what cancers might benefit from this, what cancers are the best, or even patients where they're perfectly fine. Don't have any functional issues. Don't have any exercise intolerance issues. Do they even need pre If that's the case, can we just build some functional baseline for them? So after treatment wise, we can see how much they might need in order to get back to the functional baseline, or we can have a baseline of what they were at. So we know how much rehabilitation or how much effort we can put in to hopefully get them back to where they were pre-treatment.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. And you know, um, as you know, we have an open clinical trial here in ovary cancer for patients undergoing neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So it's prehabilitation alongside their chemotherapy, where there's pros and cons. And I, I think there's several other institutions across the country and even internationally who have similar trials. But I, I, I tend to agree that sort of like you know having three to even fourteen days before surgery may or may not be. And I you know if you can prehab someone in that time, perhaps they never needed prehabilitation.
3: Absolutely. I agree. Cause you can't get a ton done in those three to 14 days. And if some people have done more high intensity interval training during those times, see if they can get more aggressive therapy. But if you're finding that even in that short period of time, patients aren't benefiting from it, it's making things worse. That might be a patient. You might want to take a step back and say, Hmm. Maybe surgery isn't the best option. Maybe we may need to go for chemotherapy radiation or even delay treatment some more if it's a cancer that allows it because it's less aggressive and grows more slowly that we can take the time to do more rehabilitation on a regular basis before doing that treatment. But ideally, I would say at the time of diagnosis, even after a colonoscopy, if we think that some sort of procedure is going to be done in the future, that's probably the time to send someone to a prehab clinic so they can get the most out of it. That's just kind of hard to do, unfortunately, because not everyone is aware of these clinics or where they should even send the patient for that.
2: Yeah. And that leads me to, I think, the next um, really important question, because I think I've always thought of myself as the oncologist, as the person who should sort of identify the need for prehab and send patients. Like, how does one go get about Creating a prehabilitation program and getting that set up. Like, what's the ideal prehab program clinic look like? Who's running it? Who? What are the elements that are necessary? Um, and then, how do we alter that to make it feasible? You know, from the no no money, um, no issues around cost, no issues around time. This is our ideal, but then translating that to something that's clinically feasible.
3: So that is a very hard thing to do, but it definitely is possible. I would say the first thing you really have to find is a champion in the field you want to start the pre clinic in, whether it be medical oncologist, surgical oncology, who wants to do this for their patients because they've seen some benefit in it in the past. Building on top of that, you can start being able to see patients on a more early basis in terms of diagnosis, whether it's primary care physician who's referring them to the oncologist, At the same time, they're seeing the oncologist. If they might know that there's going to be some sort of treatment in the future, that's when you want to start the prehabilitation. That's when you start your functional assessments. So this is a multidisciplinary type clinic. You have to have lots of other players involved in this. You're going to need at least a physiatrist or someone who's used to dealing with people's functional deficits and can do a full comprehensive evaluation on them. On top of having that, you're going to need at least a physical therapist or occupational therapist to also do some of these testing, whether it's grip strength, six minute walk test, timed up and go test, looking at some imaging as well. You have to, hopefully they have things like CT scans in the past. You can look at um, sarcopenia on, or also someone who's trained in ultrasound to look at rectus femoris size as well. There are some of these tests you can do without having the aid of a therapist as well. You will have to have a nutritionist involved to help screen for nutritional deficits and come up with a plan. And also on top of that, you're going to need someone when it comes to counseling, whether that's going to be a social worker, a case manager, or even a psychologist, if you have the, the time and cost for that.
2: You know, just building off of that much of what you've talked about is quite specialized and really beyond the scope of the education and practice that GYN oncologists often have. And so, you know, we're, I think, quite lucky at somewhere like Mayo Clinic, where many different subspecialties exist. And we have people like you who are very interested in this. What about institutions that don't have cancer rehab, or even very much PM&R departments? What is their way forward?
3: I would say if that's the case, asking for help and asking for resources is probably the best way to go about this. Talking to hospital administrators can be very difficult when it comes to this, but coming from the background of this can save money, this can save time patients spend in hospital, this can decrease complications. There's lots of data showing that this does work, especially in cancer patients. So being able to present this to administrators and say, this is a cost-saving treatment that we can do for patients. It doesn't require a lot of time, and it can have a lot of benefits downstream during cancer. I think it's something that you can do as well.
2: That's great. Well, I'm very appreciative, Dr. Barksdale, of you taking your time and lending us your expertise. Um, It's been great to work with you as a collaborator, and I know that we'll have a lot more we can do here at Mayo Clinic. So
1: thank you so much.
3: Thank you. I look forward to working with you too.
1: Next, I'd like to introduce our guest today, who's Dr. Emily Finlayson. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself as we get started?
4: Sure, happy to. So I'm a colon and rectal surgeon here at UCSF, and my research is primarily around um, frailty and surgery. So how do you prepare older adults to, be, to have successful surgery? Um, how do you align goals of care? And how do you take care of them post-op so that they can get back to their baseline function? How do you define frailty and how do you think it's best measured? Well, you know, I think most providers think of it sort of as pornography, right? You know it when you see it and you don't really know what it is. It's just a little vibe that you get. But there is actually, you know, pretty well codified definitions of frailty. But the overarching concept is it's a state of decreased physiologic reserve so that these are people who um, have a decreased ability to respond to stressors. Um, And there's lots of different ways to measure frailty. Um, It's really sort of a a combination of sort of function, mobility, multimorbidity, um, nutrition. So sort of a conglomerate of um, vulnerabilities. And uh, there's a huge variety of ways to measure it, um, whether it's um, sort of surveys, functional measures, lab tests, you know,
1: tasks, different things like that. Um, So it's pretty heterogeneous. And so there is a difference as what you were describing between frailty and having multiple medical comorbidities. Yeah. And I think that's what makes it
4: a little bit of a newer concept for surgeons um, because we've always been so focused on the preoperative evaluation that involves, you know, cardiopulmonary status, liver status, you know, renal function. And we're very good at, you know, making sure that all of our I's are dotted and our T's are crossed to make sure that patients are optimized medically. Uh, but we're missing that whole other piece. So multimorbidity is a piece of frailty. Obviously, a, a um, accumulation of medical diagnoses can make someone less uh, robust to withstand a physiologic uh, challenge. But there's all those other um, conditions that are associated with aging that sort of be, uh, add, are added on top of that that makes it sort of additive risk.
1: Yeah. Well, you take care of patients with colon cancer as part of your practice. We take care of patients with ovarian cancer. I guess in terms of thinking about frailty and outcomes, um, do you have any comments about thinking about survival and surgical morbidity? How does frailty affect your surgical decision-making?
4: Well, I think it's important to, you know, over the last decade, there's been sort of a mounting uh, pile of evidence looking at frailty and surgery in all different disciplines, urology, gynecology, colorectal, general surgery, thoracic surgery. And it's pretty consistent that regardless of what kind of operation you're having, whether it's an outpatient operation or an inpatient operation, Frailty is going to have a big impact on uh, both your post-operative complications, but also your return to baseline function and your ability to be independent after surgery. So regardless of the magnitude of the operation or what the kind of operation it is, you really need to have a keen eye on frailty and figuring out you know, whether this person is a good candidate for surgery, the magnitude of the surgery that they can withstand, and how do you support these people so you can optimize them for surgery and create a soft landing once
1: they leave the hospital.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you talked about different ways of measuring frailty. Um, I don't know if you have a specific score that you want to think about. You know, we've modified frailty index score in some of our other conversations. You know, do you have a particular tool, and how has your research affected your approach to this concept of frailty around cancer surgery?
4: Yeah, there's, you know, over the last 20 years, there's been a myriad of uh, validated uh, frail scales. And I always say the one that you're willing to use, willing and able to use is the best one, the one that can be integrated seamlessly into your practice. We know, you know, there's a, a really good survey from a couple of years ago um, showing that surgical oncologists really think it's important to marry, to uh, measure these geriatric uh, vulnerabilities Uh, but none of them do it. And they feel like they don't have the expertise or the time to actually address them. So there's this huge gap. So trying to come up with a frailty scale that people can use seamlessly and interpret makes a big difference. So I'm not, you know, a stickler for one or the other that said, I am a bit evangelical about the Edmonton frail scale. Um, And the reason I like that is it can be performed by someone without medical training. Um, It doesn't require any labs that you have to send and then look up afterwards. It doesn't require any special equipment to measure grip strength. Um, it's just sort of a survey question. There's and the other thing that's really nice about it is you know, it takes about four minutes. You get uh, a frailty score that stratifies their the, you know the degree of frailty of the patient, but it also breaks out each question sort of maps to a vulnerability. So not only do you see that the patient's frail, but you say oh these are the areas where they have problems with mobility. They have polypharmacy. These are the areas that I'm going to go try to address before surgery. So it kind of gives you a checklist for how you can optimize the patient for surgery and a window
1: to where the vulnerabilities might be post-op. Yeah, that's fantastic. Because I feel like in many places, we recognize someone is frail, but once identified, what sort of interventions can you take to really improve surgical and their oncologic outcome? Yeah. And, you know, if you look at, um, you know, the
4: American College of Surgeons launched their geriatric verification program a couple of years ago, and there was a big debate about, you know, whether, you know, when you're, when the required screening, is it going to be frailty or is it going to be cognition and function and mobility? But really the consensus was, you know, the most important thing is to figure out what the vulnerability is Mm -hmm. and, you know, pushing people to screen for these, these conditions that are common in older patients, like, some mild cognitive apparent, We know that that's way underdiagnosed in the surgical population. And you can ask yourself, like, how do you really consent this patient for surgery if there's an underlying cognitive issues that you haven't unmasked? Um, so I'm I'm much more of a proponent of um, sort of drilling down on the individual vulnerabilities, whether it's nutrition or polypharmacy or social isolation or um, food insecurity, all those kind of issues that you can bubble up that you
1: can address before surgery. Tell us a little bit more about what the American College of Surgeons is working on for tools. Sure. Um, So the American
4: College of Surgeons, as you know, has a sort of a whole menu of uh, improvement uh, programs, whether it's trauma or cancer or um, pediatrics. Um, And so they really wanted to create a cross-cutting program. Um, that could be implemented at large hospitals, small hospitals, rural, urban, because everybody takes care of older patients, not like trauma centers where you have a level one trauma center and they have to do all the bells and whistles. So what we did was make a very um, sort of parsimonious um, list of standards for older patients um, really bucketed into sort of pre-op, peri-op, and then care transitions and really focusing on the domains of nutrition, cognition, function and goals of care. So all of the standards, all the 32 standards are really mapped to those goals uh, to shore up those, um, those areas of vulnerability in older patients. So the goal is, you know, reduce complications, make a smooth transition to home, help help patients uh, maintain their uh, independence and to make sure patients are really know what they're signing up for and, and that they're the right, pa- right operation for the right patient. Um, So, it launched a couple of years ago. We've um, started enrolling patients. We're doing our first site visits. Um, So, it's just like any of the other um, American College of Surgeons improvement programs.
1: That seems like something our SGO members may also be interested in looking into at their own institutions. Thank you so much for your time. Our previous podcast presented examples of patients we encounter in our typical gynecologic oncology practices. We encourage the audience to consider those cases again and reflect on how one might evaluate and optimize those patients before treatment. Contributing to this podcast was also Dr. Ronnie Detecki. Thanks to all of the discussants, the Opiate ERAS Working Group members, and the SGO Education Committee. Finally, we would like to acknowledge and thank our podcast editor extraordinaire, Maddie Facemeyer from the SGO staff.
0: The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO on-the-go podcasts, please email us at education at sgo.org.